Chapter 20, Matthew. Matthew. We are slowly making our way through this book. <laughs> I love it. I mean, there's, when, you, when you come to Jesus, it, it, there's just too much. I know. Oh, it's wonderful. Very rich. This is the parable of the wedding party. So we're going to read verses 1 to 16. So, Doug, uh, why don't you read verses 1 to 6? What, 1 to? 6. Okay. Uh, Jesus continued, the question of who will get to heaven is like a farmer who went down to the market place about 6 o'clock in the morning to find some men looking for work. When he found some, he made them an offer. Uh, he would pay them as much per um them so much per day and they reached an agreement and he hired them and put them to work. The day wore on and about nine o'clock the farmers realized he needed more workers. So he went back to the marketplace when he found men standing there looking for work. He said to them, come work for me. I will, I, and if you're willing to trust me, I will pay you a fair wage. They agreed. So he hired them and sent them out to work. Soon the farmer realized that he needed even more workers. So at noon, he went back to the marketplace. Uh, then again, at three o'clock in the afternoon, each time men were standing there looking for work, and they all agreed to trust the farmer for their wages. As late as five o'clock, the farmer picked up some extra men to finish the harvest. Before dark, he asked those standing there, have you been out of work all day? Okay. Uh, Cheryl, would you read verses 1 through, I'm sorry, 7 through 12? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Okay, Hannah, would you read verses 13 to 16? But he answered one to them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last, for many are called but few chosen. What model is Jesus using here for salvation? Was it once? Not once saved, always saved, is it? No. No. No, not that one. He's using, I'm, I'm talking about a model, a construct. Oh. Okay. Uh, what social construct is he using here? Labor and economics? La- again, labor and... Mm-hmm. Something we're all familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is actually a familiar scenario, I believe, in Napa Valley with uh, migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's... I don't see it as much, but they always would wait down there by the gas station to yeah. look up. Um, um, yeah, he's, yeah. I saw a parody of that uh, that my niece sent me some years ago. Of, uh, somebody made a little video and put it on YouTube of uh, uh, a migrant worker who owned the vineyard, mm-hmm. and he was picking up white Colored people, <laughs> yeah, that and putting them yeah. in the back of his pickup. Pick I bet that was fun. <laughs> it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Turn about, yeah, turn uh, about his fair play. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wonder, does Jesus stick to this model, or does he end up turning it upside down? He really is imploding this thing, isn't he? With all of us know you get paid for work, and you, I mean it's kind of dangerous to make that paid for salvation, <laughs> work for salvation. <laughs> but then he kind of implodes this whole thing, doesn't he, and say, "No, that isn't how I do it." You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I 
I'm giving you, this really isn't about how much you work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, I was talking with a former student of mine, graduate of PUC, who is serving in Asia in a not-to-be-stated place um, because he's in a closed people group uh, as a missionary. And he was saying that... um, one of the, the the perceptions that people he works with have is that there are seven levels of heaven. And this fits with that kind of thinking. You know, you work so much and you get a higher level. Uh, you work the least and you get the lowest level. And, and that seems to be the mentality that Jesus is addressing here. Mm-hmm. And, and then he, he just kind of explodes it. Mm-hmm. There's certainly some world belief systems that hold to that in their spiritual mm-hmm. model. Was there anything in, in out of these people's background that would make them other Jewish background or background that would make them think that? You know, I haven't I haven't read enough rabbinic materials to be able to answer that question. It's it's one of my goals. It's, unfortunately, I've relegated it to the back burner. <laughs> it's one of my goals to read the Talmud uh, and, and really study it. But uh, I think, in a sense, it comes out of just our our, our natural human bent. Uh, you work. You get paid for what you work. You're you're worthy of your hire. And uh, so if you work a full day, you should get paid more than the person who works only an hour. It's that kind of thinking. And of course, of course, we have, we have translated salvation into economic terms. Jesus paid the price. Mm-hmm. Um, we say that all the time, yes. And, and what that does is really devalues us because God didn't create... I mean, he created an economy, but it wasn't anything like our economy because when he made the Garden of Eden, uh, it was a garden of grace. Nobody earned anything. There was no rent to pay. There was no food to buy. uh, Nothing. Everything was free. And, you know, once I realized that, it just completely changed my perception of grace because it was all a gift, and Kairos in Greek uh, has the sense of grace. I've always felt, Gene, that it's probably the greatest deterrent for humans to understand the gospel, even all of us, myself, because all week long, everything we do is is that economic model. Yeah. You work, you get paid. You you do a good job, you're, you're, you know, you get recognition. And then all of a sudden you come Sabbath morning and we look and say, this is all a gift. And, and you know, we can hear those words but we don't understand it. <laughs> that makes sense? It, it, yes, yes, because it's, it's so, it's so ingrained it. in us to it earn it. It is. Um, in fact, we pride ourselves in, in our... Our accomplish is making us who we are. Uh, had you ever seen the movie? This is on TV. It never was uh, published, actually, as a movie to buy, or, or I don't think it was in the movie houses either, uh, movie theaters. But it was um, a story. It was a, based on a true story. Um, a a surgeon went overseas. He he was in in World War II armed forces, or else no, it was Korean War. Korean. And he was stationed in Korea, mm-hmm. and a baby was taken to an orphanage who was half Korean, half American, okay. and nobody wanted it. So a, a nun picked it up and took it aboard the ship. Now, they were never in, in military ships to take in yeah. a baby, mm-hmm. um, and the surgeon uh, took care of the baby, and 
1,000 Men and a Baby is the title. Oh, cool. And, and uh, this baby was on board the ship, and the, uh, he had a 1,000 uncles who were just watching over him, yeah. and making sure he was getting loved. And I mean, uh, just a, a tremendous video of, of mm. how the dynamics on that ship changed and, and everything. Well, the, the surgeon, of course, took care of him the most, and, and he lost his heart to this baby, but the rules were that he had to resign as the surgeon the, in order to adopt him. And his, meanwhile, and the, actually at the beginning of the movie, his wife lets him know that her, like, fifth pregnancy had failed. Oh. I mean, and, and she, she'd been trying to have yeah. a baby, and it kept failing and kept failing. And, oh my and she was in tears, and, and he was upset. And so here comes this, this baby that he loses his heart to, and, and he, he wrestles with it, and, he's, and she actually flies to Japan to meet him, oh. and she begs him to, take this, to adopt this child. And he, he says, I'm a surgeon. My father was a military surgeon, and my grandfather was a military surgeon. This is who I am. And in the end... He uh, gets he gets rid of his uh, military status. Status. He goes home to civilian life and adopts this baby. Wow, it's a good one. It is a great example of of turning that model upside down and and recognizing human value is not monetary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, Mm. and I think that's what Jesus is saying here. This really isn't about earning. This is about your value. Mm-hmm. Um, Beautiful. And it, yeah, it's, that's a great story. And it's really hard to implode that. Bucky Weeks, um, I never knew Bucky, but he uh, he did start a lot of the mission trips. He and one of the things he did he used to take these uh, juvenile delinquents down to the Huichol Indians in Mexico and. And, and you're trying to get this shift. One thing he would do, he would take this helpless little infant from one of the families, and they were under supervision, watch, but put it in one of the hands of one or two of these delinquents to take care of. Wow. You know, you, hear, you know, whose fault are you? Who owed me? You know, I didn't have the right kind of parents. or You know, it's, it's always this, uh, you know, the, Blaming someone for mm-hmm. your troubles mm-hmm. and that, but who, whose fault is it that this is a baby? And, and, it, and that was a very powerful thing to shift that. This influence, not, yeah. the, not the infant's fault. It's not their, yeah. you know, they just, they're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. I have a question about the many are called. My Bible doesn't say many are called, but few are chosen, and I know hmm. that. I've read that from other versions also. So hmm. Yeah, Hannah's had it. What version were you reading from? New King James. New King James. Let's uh, try the New King James. Or I'll just do the King James. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one is... 16. So the last shall be first and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. It's King James as well. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see if I can find a version that would actually give... Try English Standard Version. That was one of his favorite. It doesn't lines. have it. My guess yeah. is that that's a later addition to a Greek manuscript. Okay, that's uh, there's unfortunately the U version excludes the not not always. There's no there's no footnote, so it must be so obvious that this is a later edition that okay. it's just left out. Uh huh. Okay. It's, it's, consensus. I see. Gene, do you feel? That first shall be last, and last shall be first. And you know, he he says that numerous times. Yes. That this is one of his one-liners to implode this concept: you earn your way to heaven. <laughs> or you try to he's trying to flip over that. And it is system. also to implode the power structures of his day and our day. Mm-hmm. That when you have a hierarchical model, it's the first people you you cater to. It's mm-hmm. it, I mean, every time Jesus went to a feast. There was somebody who sat at the head of the table no, who was the right. honored they guest. that's right. They were very particular about and, and, um, 
and then there was the last, the least. Yeah. The last and the least were the same. Yeah. Yeah. And what Jesus is saying, you know, in, the, in, in eternity, it's going to be upside down. No hierarchy. Just, yeah. yeah. And that, that going out on the highways and by with that whole wedding feast thing was really Yeah, we're going to come really to that. Really coming to that. Yeah. We're coming to that. Yeah. Let, why don't we move on? Yeah. Uh, 20, verse, uh, chapter 21. 28 to 32. 28. To 32. And I'll go ahead and read this. Okay. What do you think? A man had two sons. Now he came to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. No, I don't want to, he replied. But later he changed his mind and went. And the father said the same thing to the other son. He replied, Yes, sir. But he didn't go. Mm. Which one of these two did the father's will? They said, The first one. Jesus said to them, I love the way Jesus builds up to his punchline. <laughs> and the punchline is just... <laughs> I assure you that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you on a righteous road, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Yet even after you saw this, you didn't change your hearts and lives, and you didn't believe him. Wow. Did you expect that punchline? No. <laughs> you expected, you know, you see boys and girls. <laughs> the message here is that if you are called, you go. You don't just say yes. Right? Yeah. That's the message. Yeah. But then Jesus says this about tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom, and that's just. Uh, that was deplorable. Yes. And they'll go before you. Mm hmm. I'll be ahead of you. If there's a grain in us, and I, I battle this myself, but if there's a grain in us that justifies our righteousness before God, that thinks we're going to deserve heaven <laughs> in any way, uh, we're going to be the last out. <laughs> what is it a book or a movie only for the undeserving? I'll have to look that up and see. Only for the undeserving. I remember that in my past. What? Youth Congress time. I think it must have been a book. Only for the undeserving. Well, we could look it up. We could look it up. I can uh, grab Amazon here. They should have a few used copies floating around. Yeah. <laughs> This is so great. He just goes after you know, par you know, parable story after story, so really hammering home this home, isn't he? Mm. What makes us think that we're more deserving than others? Glenn Coon. Was that his? Ken McFarland. Oh. It's on uh, Amazon. Amazon.com. Okay. It's a there's a Kindle edition. Oh, good. I think what happened is Glenn Kuhn wrote it and Ken McFarlane maybe re redid re it. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you could easily, do you have a Kindle? No, my mom does. I'll get it from her. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't think she uses it. Uh-huh. Yeah, Kindles are great because you don't have to get another house to house all your books. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, okay, but. Good. Anything else in this passage before we move on? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And you did not believe him. It's so bound up with this is, and, and when Jesus translates obedience as believing, as trusting, as... Oh, it's wonderful. Oh. You know, they, they pride themselves on obedience. So mm -hmm. there, there's no issue. Yes, we said yes, sir, and we went. We obey all the law. And then Jesus says, but you don't believe in me. <laughs> yeah. And that must have just <laughs> blown their minds. What? <laughs> but we obey. Yeah. We obey. <laughs> okay. Matthew 22. And this one is the wedding party. This is the one we were talking about. So 1 to 14, we're going to read here. Uh, Doug, would you read 1 to 6, please? Then Jesus turned to the people and said, The way men and women are selected for the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who prepares a banquet for his son's wedding. The king sent out his servant to tell those who 
had received the royal invitation to get ready for the celebration. Soon his son would be coming back with his, his chosen bride, and the wedding would begin, but the people refused to come. When everything was ready, the king called more of his servants and said to them, Go and tell those who are asked to get ready, and now is the time to come. Tell them that there will be uh, roast of veal and lamb and all kinds of special delicacies, and everything is ready. Come celebrate with him. Some of those who had been invited didn't take the king's invitation seriously and went about their own usual business and selling and farming. Others actually mistreated the king's servants and said, in some case, killed them. Cheryl, you want to read verses 7 to 14? The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not des deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the service went, servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. 2.12? To 14. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. <clears throat> then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or many are invited, but few are chosen. There it is again. There it is, yeah. Okay. And this time it's in there. It's, meant it's in to mine. Be. Yeah. Okay. So, what do you learn from salvation? About salvation from this? Oh. Clothed in Christ's beautiful wedding garment. And what anyone. Is, what does clothing represent? Clothing. Covering. It's righteousness. Covering. His righteousness? Covering. That's what we say, but what did what did clothing mean to these people? Clothing to these mm -hmm. people. A lot that you could status almost you could see. You're right. I, I, I did a, a study of clothing in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually Ross is the one to really ask about clothing because he, he did priestly attire in oh, Revelation. Yeah. And, sure. Oh my goodness. Um, but my sense of things is just from Old Testament study, it's, it is status, but it's more intrinsic to identity. Oh, it's our it? identity. Uh, oh, so it's who we are. My goodness. It's it's what we're known for. It's our reputation. It's our it's our it's it's what we stand for. It's our character. It's everything. Wow. Like that. Wow. Um, Deeper meaning. So so Jesus give. I mean, this is about Jesus giving. He is character, or you can't be in the wedding banquet. Mm. Ooh, I take it. And and it's his character given to us. That's a gift. Is a gift. It is uh. not our earned, mm. manufactured wow. simile of his character. I see. Um, if if you look at, I think I've mentioned this before in this class, that there are three great models that human beings created on the plain of Shinar. And there are three great models uh, that God crea created. And in, in I should say that human beings invented models and God created mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. There's three for each. The three models that God created are nature, which involves natural law, cause and effect relationships. Family, which involves relationships, love and trust, uh, bonding, uh, and so on. Um, and then there's Sabbath. And Sabbath is about um, rejuvenation, about uh, time for relationships. It's about equality because everybody rests on Sabbath. Even the animals are benef beneficiaries of Sabbath keeping. So you have those three great models. Those models are all rooted on intrinsic operations. There's nothing manufactured about it. There's nothing uh, fake about it. There's nothing contrived. There's nothing artificial. Human models are economics, 
uh, hierarchy, a kingship, and law, legal structures. Those are all contrived models. They are all artificial constructs that uh, we have invented as a substitute for our loss of cause-effect relationships, love and trust, and bonds of love and trust, and equality. So we have to make up something to provide a simile, a kind of a, a fake counterpart of what we've lost. And, and consequently, our very perceptions about eternal life and the banquet and the wedding and all of those things are artificial. We, we operate in, in what we have manufactured. Uh, this is beyond just working, earning our way to heaven now. It's about everything about how we see heaven. That wiped us out <laughs> completely. <laughs> We're superficial people. We are. Mm. We are, and we, we, loved, we loved the artificial. I, I have to admit, every time I hear somebody going to Disneyland and just, ah, I'm not going to Disneyland, I just cringe. cringe. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I really do because, and I suppose I, I was born on a different planet. All my life, I've hated the artificial. Wow, isn't that amazing? This is this new generation of young people coming up dislike artificial as well. Yeah, I don't hear them growing about going to Disneyland as much. No, as previous generations. No, they really like authentic. Yeah, authentic. There's a little bit of a movement back that way, but it just, yeah, it is, it's, boy, it's in, I think it's ingrained in the sinful nature to... Must be, in to what just, we've lost. Um, you know, to, in your to quickly sub- grab some fig leaves. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's what we're always doing, isn't it? We are so always doing but, but that. But you, you almost have to, Jean, when you... Oh, I love it in, so much. In my working with people, if, if they do not have love and attachment and deep <laughs> intimacy... So, then they have to substitute structure and control right. to function. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they, they fall apart. They fall apart. So well, it's and, terribly, it's terribly shattering to be exposed in all our nakedness and shame. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. 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 And, and the last thing we should do. We're going to grab for, like you said, we're going to grab for fig leaves. We're going to grab for something. Yeah. I, the last thing I think that we should do is is yank that fig leaf off and say, "Look at you! Right, right. <laughs> you know, this is a fake. <laughs> Here's the real thing." Um, I think it's always important, and, and Ellen White uses this principle in, in child rearing. Uh, she talked about a woman that she saw, uh, who the child was playing with something that wasn't suitable and and so the her, the mother grabbed the thing from the child and the child was very upset and began to wail and then she gave it a, what Ellen White calls a sharp chastisement which is probably that um, no doubt and and the wailing stopped and Ellen turned to her and said you have broken your child's trust mm-hmm. and I do not know how you're going to get it back mm-hmm. And then she went on to say, later in the same article, that what the mother should have done is offer the child something that's suitable for him to play with and then gently take the toy away. I love it. I love it. That's how you deal with it. And that's how you deal with everybody. Everybody. Instead of yanking off their fig leaf, uh-huh. offer them oh, something better. They usually, people usually fight you for their, like it's their last nickel, and you try to, their only security, and that's what this stuff is. Uh, if, you know, like, we're going through this issue right now, and you know, I'm in a good relationship with uh, the ex, but never grew up with any love or attachment, very wealthy, disconnected family. Had no idea how to do tenderness and he self-medicates. So you you put it, it's all about structure and control and and you're putting those and they they just don't understand. To me almost almost gene I think it's almost like that is so foreign to the human nature that it is it is actually a re, has to be revealed. 
uh, I'm working with a situation that came up last week and just the poor girl has no background or anything and then what's happening then it's my prayer is Lord just show up and reveal yourself to reveal this God this 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 stuff it is so foreign to us and then but someone who's you know they're supposed to learn that from unconditional love of their parent they're supposed to learn this in the first three months of their (laughs) life (laughs) and if they didn't they have this anxiety they have this they they have this whole system it's actually a miracle of god if if we ever catch any of it, I think, and we're beginning because we'd to rather be yank the fig leaves off. Yeah, and we have this thing we want. To, we yes. want to earn our own way. Yeah, we want to earn it. It's an ego thing too. That oh my, yeah. For well, I'd rather earn it than just. You know, to me, the most humbling and yet rejuvenating thing I finally came to is that this isn't just about salvation. This is about our value. Mm. What makes mm-hmm. us valuable? I love it. Mm-hmm. And and when I realized there is absolutely only one thing that makes us valuable, and that's that we were created in the image of God. That is, and that levels the playing field right there. It does. Because who's wow. higher and lower? Nobody. And and when I realized that, I realized then that when Jesus came and to use the the economic model again, he bought us back. Yeah, he gave us all heaven as the value that we have, and I just read this beautiful statement in Desire of Ages this morning, where she said that, G- that God is grieved when we do not place the estimate on ourselves that He places on us. Now you put that in. How in the world do we ever place that kind of estimate on ourselves? It's pretty hard. Wow. Um, but I think that's where we have to start is trying to establish where our real value is based yeah, on yeah. Uh, and it's intrinsic and it's not something we can earn it's not something we can manufacture uh, it is who we are by creation it's a declared value yeah. mm. Mm. that's good well, that's really good. I'd be interested what is, what's your cultural background Korean, Korean. Korean. Mm-hmm. it's hard in the in the Christian Korean fellowship, uh, with with your cultural background, the Korean culture, is it hard for them to understand what we're talking about? That salvation is grace. It's it's a gift. Is it is it hard? Or do you struggle with the same thing we're talking about, or is it easier for them to understand that? Mm, well, um, I just noticed that wherever. Any Korean church I go to, yeah, they stress oh, by the grace of God and you know that they're not worthy and you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they really, um, yeah. Is is that come out of uh, most Asian cultures are very gift giving? Mm, perhaps. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mm-hmm. give a gift and you, you kind of exchange a gift. Mm-hmm. And that's that's originally, I think, the closest we get to the model of Garden of Eden uh, is, is that you give a gift and the other person responds in kind because they're moved by your gift and, mm-hmm. and they want to reciprocate. The problem is when that broke down is when societies began to s- obligate that gift mm-hmm. return. You, and then, you, then gift, it, you owe me. You owe me. Uh, I've obligated you. Uh, and then the next step, of course, is we trade. It's just a given. That then it becomes economic. Then it becomes economic. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So gift giving is a is a big tradition. Like if you go to someone's house, you take a gift. Yeah. yeah. Flowers. Yeah, and it's just a gesture of love yeah. and kindness. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. That's, that, that would is, help. That is, that would, see, I, I taught in Hong Kong, and, and it's the it same is. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Very gift-giving uh, culture. So you know what a, we have a hard time knowing what a gift is, and I think we have a hard time receiving a gift. Receiving a gift for those. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, well, the American work ethic. Yeah. It comes all out of this very, very economic structure. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. 
But he turns the tables in these verses, and it's so cool to see what the the bottom line. Reads. Jesus never leaves us stranded in a legal or economic oh, or kingly model. Thank God. He always presents it with a little twist at the end that just <laughs> completely undoes it. Okay, I'll start with where you are, but in the end, you're going to be surprised. And our time, our time is nearly up, so we can just finish off by just chatting about this rather than going on to a new okay. passage. I just, and it, it would have loved to have been there to see the faces, because some of his, I mean, they're just terribly radical. When you're in that hierarchy and he says, well, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to come into the kingdom before you. I mean, they must have just about fallen off their their benches. <laughs> I mean, that is such a when they're in this hierarchy trying to you know earn their way up. It reminds me of the class where I was trying to teach against racial discrimination, and I had an African American student sitting on the front row, and I asked the question, "What if Jesus? What if Jesus came back and we discovered he was African?" And a student in the back whispered in a stage whisper that I'm sure the student on the front row heard, because I heard it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't want to go there. <gasps> and I think that must have been the response of the Pharisees. I, if that's what heaven is like, and you're going to put the tax collectors and the prostitutes first, I'm not going. I'm not going. Yeah, I, wow. bet, I bet that's, that's what That's got to have been how they thought. But he kept doing that, didn't he? He just would do that. Uh, implode um, uh, those are actually um, uh, Reed Barbosh who was with authority and values I, he was kind of the world authority and value change that I studied under and he developed a model of him. one of the ways you change values is you you put people in this radical non-neutral it's doing exactly what Jesus did you make these statements or you tell the story and they just, you know, you got to do something with that. You just, mm-hmm. like when, I remember when I first took students to central Mexico, my upper middle class white students from Walla Walla. <laughs> drop them into the, 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 the drop lily them into white the, college yeah, or university. Drop them into the poverty and the need of the villages Wonderful. there. They just, they didn't know what to do. Some of them would just give all their money away. Some of them would, they, but you had to respond. And it was the most powerful thing that I ever saw. It was, I always say, one week in Mexico was worth a year of the best youth programming you could do. Oh, it was better than that. Better than that. (laughs) But it it would force you to, you know, am I going to show love and care and empathy into that, or am I going to, you know, stay in my selfish you know, upper class white world. You know, God did that to my family. We grew up in Lily White, Oregon. And I remember there were two, there were twin brothers who were African American at Laurelwood Academy. And uh, we had a sewer problem in our backyard. And guess who got to dig up the sewer by themselves? No. Yes. And they sang hymns the whole time. Wow. They were beautiful singers. They sang in the choir, oh. and they sang hymns the whole time they were digging up our sewer. You were you were an elementary kid watching. I was a preschooler. Preschool. I was like four or five, and I remember my parents saying some dark things about the fact that they were the ones sent to do this, yeah. and that the supervisor wasn't there helping them, mm-hmm. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, it was a lesson that I'm... I'll never forget. Yeah. Because it was just it was just so exquisitely beautiful how they handled it, mm-hmm. but the, but that's the kind of climate, and and of course it was very legalistic in the sixties. <laughs> yes, I yeah. do remember that. <laughs> and I, I'll just say one of my family was had very high level musical taste and still does, but but I mean rigidly high musical tastes and so when the Wedgwood Trio emerged (laughs) there was a letter written to HMS Richards Jr. (laughs) requesting that that be removed this is not a kind of music we want etc and I mean Wedgwood Trio now is about as mild as you can get (laughs) (laughs) and uh, um, 
This was, this was kind of, in fact, it, I was so impressed with bad guitar music that it was so bad that uh, one day my brother got his, uh, he, my parents had given him part of their old stereo and he had used it and made his own stereo cabinet and he he'd hooked up the speakers and everything and he finally could play it. And so he went rummaging in my parents' stash of records and he found a lute, English lute record and he put it on and I was just like, oh, that's terrible music. And I went down to my mother and I said, why don't you make Don turn that off? That's terrible. She says, what off? I said, that terrible guitar record, can't you hear? That's funny. And and that began to make my parents kind of question, what are we teaching our daughter, you know? (laughs) And and then we, I got fired from Laurelwood. What? I did not know that. Yes. um, There were 20 faculty staff members fired in one summer, or one spring. Um, because the business manager had a hit list, and he persuaded the entire board to go after his hit list. He was a rascal guy. He was. I think I remember him, in fact. Uh, anyway. Wow. That was shattering. That was the first time. Uh, it wasn't the first time, actually, that Dad got let go, but it was the first time he got so summarily fired. In, in such a very unjust and uh, mm. bad situation, mm. and it was it was shattering because they had depended on the church mm. as their robe of righteousness. Isn't that true? It wasn't so white. It wasn't so white. And and we got Pure. we shipped down to Arizona, and that was the end of Lily White, Oregon. Yeah. Dad taught at Thunderbird Academy. He mm-hmm. taught at Thunderbird. Yeah, and oh, that's I where I went. That's where I went to academy. Oh, that's amazing. And you I went had, to academy there. Yeah, I had oh, African American yeah. student sure. classmates. I yes. had uh, a lot of Hispanic Very. classmates, mm-hmm. and and suddenly something happened to my dad's musical taste. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, he got yeah. more tolerant. He bought me a guitar for Christmas. Yeah, oh, yeah, not wow. immediately, but yeah, by the but time I was eighteen. That cool? And um, in fact, he got so different that I got worried about him. Dad, <laughs> you know? yeah, what's happening to you? <laughs> and and so that that whole shattering thing with the church, and then the move to a do, new location where things were more relaxed and and where the sun always shone, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, yeah, just completely changed our paradigm. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I think that if we hadn't, I, I hate to think how hopeless we would have been. Oh, my goodness. As a family. That was kind of a pit, that era for Laurelwood, wasn't it? It was really gloomy. Oh, it was terrible the way students were treated. Uh-huh. Oh, so yeah, They had a reputation at college, oh. I think, that the kids, they were kind of out of control coming out of... Well, they were rebellious. Yeah, it, they the, they were so locked down tight yeah. that the students were just... Yeah. Get us yeah. out, of once they're out of there. They just they were just were loose and oh yeah. Well, it, it was that that whole climate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up under that shadow, and and I can tell you honestly that every sermon was on sin, some sin. <gasps> and 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 it was so consistent that one day I got to thinking, well, how do how do the pastors find something to preach about every Sabbath? <laughs> By this time, I was about 11, and because uh, we lived there 12 years. Sure. And um, I, I, I decided, okay, here's what happens. The pastors collect all the sins of the parishioners during the year. <laughs> they make a list And then of they them. send them to the conference, and the conference <laughs> compiles all the lists from the churches and sends them back to the pastors, pastors for their sermon. For their sermon ideas, <laughs> What an eleven-year-old mind will create, man! Uh, and I, I mentioned that to my dad, and he said, "That's what I thought when I was a kid." <laughs> but I remember sitting in that Laurelwood Chapel with oh. the dark paneling, yep. and the bucket seats, yes, and and I'm sitting there thinking that God didn't love me, and that He was, you know, just frowning like the weather outside, mm-hmm. uh, which it, it rained incessantly when I was so a child. Oh, it does, it does, and. And uh, 
I remember towards the end of the 60s, the word must have gotten out to the pastors that you need to leave them with some hope that Jesus still loves them. Uh-huh. And so we, we get these PSs tacked onto the ends of sermons. Oh, and yes, Jesus still loves you. <laughs> I know. And, oh. and I began to see a little bit of ray of hope. Mm-hmm. But, but it, was, it was so bad that when I went back for a visit uh, some years ago, about 2002, I walked into that chapel. Everything was fine, even though I had really hard treatment from my peers in elementary school. I could go to the elementary school and think pleasant thoughts and, and really? pleasant memories. I went into that chapel, and it was like... That's a, yeah. Nothing had changed. <laughs> Still those bucket seats and really? dark paneling. And, and I just... I wanted to leave as soon as I walked in. Mm-hmm. And that whole picture of God just came back to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just—it was so real that I was in shock. I was like, I, you know, I thought maybe I over, overstated this, or, but it was like taking me back to deja vu. It's a flashback. Like, wow. Wow. It's Can amazing. you imagine it's the just, numbers um, of kids that went through there and felt that? Oh. And and how many of them are still in the church? Oh. How do yeah. they stay? Yeah. My them. brother isn't. My brother isn't. My, my, yeah, very few of our yeah. generation stayed. It just, um, and it was, it was all that whole yeah. property. You know what? You know what? Well, Maxwell helped helped a lot. I had yes, so did. many classes from him, but at college. But he the did. thing that saved us on a personal level is uh, the re- we had a revival. It was that year all the revival went through all the colleges, and it was Campus Crusade. <laughs> <laughs> that there was, and I remember it was just totally shocking to me because I grew up a very performance-based family, and it was all how you looked and what you did, da, 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 da. and to have that message that um, he's on the throne of your life, and there is there is total acceptance and grace, and you know we didn't, and then they were really mad at us at the college because we we're believing all we all we want to do is read Romans. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they carried around their Bibles the, and were quoting Romans all the time. It was, it was just overwhelming. That's when you know that revival was instrumental in my conversion. And, yeah, well, and, mine, mine too. Um, it, it greatly opened up the church. A church we would be, I, I hate to think where we'd be without that revival. Yes, yes, yes. I wonder when, it's been a long time since we've had one. It has. And I just, you know, Bibles are such unique, <laughs> interesting events. But we had a group here, my, they pray weekly or my weekly for revival. But they're such powerful things. When the Spirit yeah. of God, like you said, even you get a little taste of it like a couple weeks ago, yeah. and when God just kind of shows up in a special way, and it just, it was powerful. I changed my life, totally changed. Uh, and uh, you just kind of, it's the stuff we're reading. You can kind of logic it, you can try to explain it, but when it's revealed to you, it's a whole different level. It, 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 yeah, it, the experience. And this to me is why uh, we have to view salvation through an experiential lens, or it is yeah. It is only one part of our yeah, brain. It's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's a cognitive, it's a cognitive response. And that doesn't change the life. All your heart, mind, and soul. Yeah, there's a whole other dimension when you experience that or you feel that and you own it and accept it. And and I think I was the first in the family to... Well, I wasn't the first. My brother was the first. But I was the second Mm. in the family to forsake classical music for a time because that revival (coughs) brought all this other kind of music in uh, that to me was so personal and so... so, um, I could sing that music and feel closer to God than I could the old hymns and and the classical stuff. Um, it was it was really if you grew up without that that dynamic of, of experience and feeling and that whole. It's Which real, I did. It's really scary to feel God's presence if you've never felt warmth or tenderness or kindness. It's really scary. To, oh no, I don't want to go there. This is too. You know, I was fortunate that my mother dedicated me to the Lord before I was born. And God, she knows that God raised me uh, as much as he could. I mean, there was the years of my legalism, but um, when I was a five-year-old, I had a conversion experience. And um, 
And that was after my year of being an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was four. Four? <laughs> I was four. When I was Good four. thing she went through it early. <laughs> right. So glad. Um, I have the temperament that naturally goes that way. Um, but um, I had this conversion experience. And I remember this one Friday, we were on our way to camp meeting, and my dad had had a really busy day and hadn't been able to get, we hadn't been able to get away when we wanted to. And so sundown was nearly upon us. And mom, had, we had to get that car unloaded before sundown. And we had to, you know, it was just, yeah, sure. my family was just, my mother especially, very uh, insistent that we guard the edges of the Sabbath. And here we were on the edge of Gladstone. Right. And the sun had set. <laughs> After my mother spent miles worrying, worrying out loud about breaking Sabbath. Oh, and finally she said, well, I guess we'll have to keep Sabbath here in the car. And so she started joint, having us sing, I'm on my way home. My oh. heavenly home. Oh. I'm on my way home to the Savior. And I was this little four-year-old, five-year-old, sitting in the back seat. <laughs> and I felt the presence of God. Oh, that's wonderful. Come into that's that car oh, yeah. and say to me, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. Don't, <laughs> don't buy your mom's. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say that, but it was like there. Oh, what a relief. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He can do more in a moment than we can teach in a lifetime. Yeah. He can. Mm. All by and he can undo our woundedness in a moment, yeah. whereas yeah. most people take a lifetime. Yeah. I've had him do it for me. Yeah. And um, wow. you think of the encounters Jesus had with people when he healed them. He always yeah. healed them emotionally as well as physically. Yeah. And he only had to say a few words, and their whole life was just. Yeah. You look at that list, he always puts the heart first. You know, love me with all your intellect. I just, I, just I, I, I love the story of the leper. Oh, At the yeah. first sensation he has on his shoulder is the hand of Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I have oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> no, it's that, oh, and Jean, I think I just love where you're going and what you're sharing with us where you and, and all of us have been in that journey but you all said this is a holistic and you got to have all those pieces you can't have one leg on the stool you got to have you know mental emotional spiritual i mean it's a dynamic it's a dynamic encounter with god and uh as soon as you pull off and try to just do it cognitively or you just try to do it just emotionally i mean it doesn't work it has to have that dynamic so actually, more than different than actually in the way our brains are constructed isn't it supposed to be dynamic first and then cognitive yeah, yeah. always that yeah. order yeah. and That's when a, we jump that hoop yeah. we distort everything yeah you never tell your baby well you're my baby you have to love me and I mean, you 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 hold I'm afraid some people do. <laughs> you hold on your paddle while you do, and it's. I was watching something this week, and that just it takes a horrendous amount of of dosage of that stuff to get normality, for they can be tender and kind and sensitive, and uh, but it just uh, in developing that, yeah, you got to you got to mm. feel that. You can't just intellectualize that. You can't, you can't manufacture it, and that's what intellectualizing is. It's trying to manufacture it. Well, what, what, yeah. We don't teach that in our church yet, do we, Jean? No. That that is just as important as intellectualizing. <laughs> well, let's have a quick prayer. Let's do. God, we thank you that you have revealed your love that every day. You reach out to us to embrace us, and we pull away because it's so foreign to us. Open us up. Enable us to allow you to love us so that we can love you back and love other people. In Jesus' name, amen.